Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're continuing through the healing of the formerly paralyzed man, and moreover, the proclamation of a sinner forgiven, which is the greater and eternal miracle of this text. The healing of the paralysis was just to prove to the skeptical Pharisees looking on that Jesus had actually indeed looked upon a sinner and proclaimed him forgiven. Here is Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. So it has a huge effect on the onlookers. There was already a massive crowd. It was so big that it was hard for them to even get through this crowd with that stretcher. That's why they resorted to going up on the roof, destruction of property, busting through someone's ceiling, and lowering this paralyzed man on a stretcher. It's very risky. It's very inconsiderate, but it's all worth it because you ought not let any crowd or any rooftop or anybody else's expectations of what is considered polite behavior stop you from getting your friends to Jesus. As this man obeys Jesus's call to get up, pick up his mat, and go home, he rightly gives glory to God en route. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. So he did as he was instructed, but he also did so glorifying God. And then in the very next verse, you can see that other people are giving glory to God. This whole healing has resulted in the glory of God. What higher cause could there be? May your own healing of your soul result in glory to God. And would you bring your friends to Jesus, no matter the crowd, no matter the obstacle, so that other people would give glory to God? Would your whole life be one big mirror that just reflects the glory of God, causing other people to glorify God? It's awesome because the friends aren't the heroes here. Jesus is. They aren't the ones who get glorified. Jesus is. Now, there is something interesting about the verbiage in verse 26. Everyone is astounded. They're giving glory to God. They're filled with awe. And they said, we have seen incredible things today. That's how it's translated in the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. Uh, the King James, and perhaps I think the New King James, also renders it strange things today. Here's the Greek word, if you're watching this on allies.network, paradoxos, from where we get the word paradox. It means that it's contrary to popular opinion or expectation. It's not what they expected. And so I've read one commentator who is a little skeptical of the faith of the crowd. Uh, we've seen incredible things today. We went to church, as it were, and we had a good show, and it was interesting. It was paradoxical. It was incredible, or it was strange, depending on the translation. And he doesn't believe that that's transformative belief. I'm optimistic for the crowd because they're glorifying God. Everyone, it says, was astounded, and they were giving glory to God. Uh, now, in that everyone has to be the the caveat of what comes next in the narrative that <clears throat> these Pharisees who were watching this immediately start going after Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. 
So they have witnessed proof upon proof upon proof, I mean, incontrovertible proof that Jesus is Lord, and yet they seem ever further persuaded uh, to go against Jesus with his every miracle. It's partly why early on in the arc of Jesus' ministry, he would disappear into the crowd, or he would heal somebody and tell them to be quiet about it. Uh, <clears throat> he knew that his time had not yet come. And it's because the more miracles, the more proof that these guys saw of the deity of Jesus, uh, the more that it would persuade them to, in their blasphemous hearts, bring about the events that would lead to the crucifixion. They all saw the same event. Everyone saw the same thing. But the takeaway for at least the majority of the Pharisees, if not all of them, was to murder Jesus. In your evangelistic walk, as you come upon those who are, they're not neutral to the idea of God, they're, they're hostile toward the idea of God, beware the tendency for them to put themselves on the judge's bench as though they're the ones evaluating God and they are the one who sits authoritatively over all that is true. That presupposes perfect knowledge, doesn't it? When you engage your skeptical friend, they will try to feign moral, uh, moral neutrality and objectivity, but no one's actually neutral because we're all born with a sin nature. Moreover, it's completely the wrong premise for them to picture themselves on a judge's bench looking down at Jesus and evaluating him. The polar opposite will turn out to be true upon standing in judgment before God. God is the one who judges. They don't evaluate God. Rather, God evaluates all of us, and every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when they demand evidence to show me some proof, oftentimes you could give them proof and then it will drive them further away, and then give them more proof, and it will drive them further away, because it will further entrench them in this idea that they're the ones evaluating God, that they are on the judge's bench, and he's on the plaintiff's stand, right? Forgive me if I use the wrong legal terminology there, but as you bring them proof upon proof upon proof, the, nobody had better proof than the Pharisees. They literally saw Jesus. They were physically there. They watched him heal this man, and it made them want to kill him. They watched him feed thousands of people, and then it made them demand a sign. They watched Jesus work miracle upon miracle upon miracle, and even after the resurrection, still, still, it just further entrenched them in their hostility toward God, which is altogether ironic because they were supposed to be the most spiritual dudes in town. They were the religious leadership. So watch for this tendency as you evangelize. There are people who will demand proof, will demand evidence. And in terms of apologetics, I used to do this. I even, I even uh, uh, had a book years ago that really, I think, built upon what's called the evidentialist approach to apologetics. And I began to see that it would bear fruit. God would use it uh, to save souls. Um, but what I've, what I've migrated over to in the last you know, 10 years is more of a presuppositionalist approach to apologetics. And if you want more on this, we have an entire series. Uh, it's called Reason for Hope, and it's available uh, through, through JCM. And it looks at that underlying presupposition where your, your premise is wrong, 
you're not on the judge's bench evaluating the evidence that's brought before you. It's not like God's on trial before you. Rather, you and I will all stand you know, in judgment before God one day. And we're not actually neutral. We're not in our sin-stained flesh capable of making neutral moral judgments. And we lack the authority to say, yes, this is true or that's not true, or to presuppose absolute perfect knowledge. The only way to be absolutely certain of anything is to have perfect knowledge, to know absolutely everything there is to know in the universe. If you knew 99% of all the things that there are to know, it's possible that that remaining 1% of intellectual dark matter could completely controvert all the other 99 that you know. And so you can't be actually certain of anything unless you have perfect knowledge. You cannot say with authority, there is no God, unless you have absolute perfect knowledge, which nobody has. Nobody has this. I'm not that old yet, but in my time on the earth, I have seen the collective body of wisdom of the highest minds that the earth has all radically changed their stances on numerous things from nutrition for crying out loud. Like in the, in the nineties, they were feeding us pizza and hamburgers with milkshakes at, at like, you know, 1030 in the morning every day. And then they showed us a food pyramid that was nearly the converse of the one we have today. And they're like, listen, kids, you need, eat, need to eat lots of carbs and bread, eat more bread than anything all day long. <laughs> you know, this was, this was put out by the ADA and it was in textbooks everywhere. All right, uh, things about climate, like we were genuinely concerned about a, a global freeze, a coming ice age, and then it was global warming, and now it's climate change. Uh, everything that we believe authoritatively has just shifted, you know, and I'm, I'm 38. I'm not that old, really, like, but I've watched the collective stance of everything that we know and believe totally change. The James Webb Space Telescope is completely changing things that uh, we understood as almost solid fact about the whole universe for crying out loud there are, there are so many there there's so many things that were presupposed as fact and it turns out that we were wrong about them no one has perfect knowledge but god this is the humble honor of the christian we are humble in that we don't know everything but we know the one who does we are honored to have received from him the perfect revelation his word this is revelational epistemology. We believe because God has revealed the truth to us. We don't have perfect knowledge. God does. I don't know everything that there is to know, but I know the one who does. And so a Christian then of a humble intellectual background can be correct, not because he's correct in his own thinking, but because he knows the one who is correct. Even while an atheist with multiple PhDs and a genius level IQ who's a, you know, a polyglot and a polymath can be completely head in the wrong direction because he took a wrong turn way back at the start. His presuppositions are wrong. And so a priori, all of his moral conclusions are flawed because his instrument is corrupted. It's not that he lacks intelligence. He has plenty of it. It's that he took a wrong turn at the start. And so his premise, his worldview, his foundational paradigm for thinking 
is flawed. And so every statement that you make after that is incorrect. If when we meet, I get your name wrong, <laughs> right? Everything else that I say about you is going to be confusing to other people because I'm not talking about you. I'm naming somebody else. I'm causing confusion. And this is what's happening with the Pharisees. They presuppose themselves as the ones who were in authority. And every time they see more evidence of Jesus's lordship, it seems to drive them further and further away, even into murderous intent and action thereafter. So as you share your faith with other people, beware that bringing them evidences, sometimes God uses it to bear fruit. I have seen it. Sometimes bringing them evidences further feeds that delusion that they are on the bench evaluating God. They lack the authority. They lack the perfect knowledge. They are wholly unqualified and morally incapable of judging God. Are you kidding me? The perfect reverse is true. What is necessary is a step of faith, being sure of what you hope for, being certain of what you do not see by the Holy Spirit of God miraculously coming in and confessing, Jesus is Lord. So as you evangelize, you pray for a miracle. See to it that we don't help feed into that delusion that our skeptical friends are morally neutral and that they're judging God. It's actually the polar opposite.